Hello and welcome back to the Eye to Eye podcast for episode four. Today we are joined by former professional and now head of goalkeeping at the Eye to Eye Soccer Academy, Michael Ingham. We'll go through the highs and lows of his illustrious career, impact on mental health, as well as his role at Eye to Eye. Iggy, thank you very much for joining us on the Eye to Eye podcast. How are you? Yeah, good, you? Yeah, good, thank you. Uh, how's training been? It's been good. Boys have been working hard. Um, looking forward to get back into group sessions and games. Very good, yeah. Not long, not long to wait for that. Um, so, so to begin, I want to go back, uh, right back to the very start, um, growing up in Northern Ireland. What, what was that like? Um, it was tough. I mean, I don't know. John gives me a bit of stick about it, tongue in cheek. But um, yeah, it was tough. Um, like day to day life wasn't um, really different, but it was just you're living in fear of shootings or bombs being involved. I mean, you're you're not really targeted, but it's like loved ones, innocent ones that got you no know, caught up in it. So uh, affected me. Um, class friend of mine, his father got shot dead on a street corner and one of my mum's best friends, um, her husband got shot dead in his kitchen. So it affects things and like even just simple things like, I know I'm a bit old, but back in the day when we used to kick cans around the street and coffee jars when we didn't have footballs and there was a time where one of my friends, Pico, he kicked a coffee jar just as a footballer, just you know, kicked along the street as he was walking along and, and exploded into his face and he ripped all his bottom of his chin off. It was a coffee jar bomb that was thrown at the army or police that didn't detonate. So it affects you in a way. How do you deal with that then? Um, just really got on with it, really. Um, just try to do my day-to-day life. And you, back then, you couldn't walk into certain areas and you just had to stick to your area and stuff like that. And um, I would say, don't think I'm wrong in saying this. I think when you played football, there was an extra spice on things because it was religion was involved, but it's not like that anymore. Um, so I just really concentrated and got my head down on schoolwork. And uh, I played different sports. I was playing basketball, Gaelic, uh, obviously football. And I, was, I was playing sports seven days a week. Did those tough times help you in a way to grow up fast? Yeah, well... I don't think you realise that until you get to this, the latter parts of your career when you look back at it. And I think I did have a, a tougher upbringing um, come from a not-so-nice area. So the, the, one of the biggest driving forces for me was to to really not go back there. I didn't want to go back there. And if, if I ever did have to, then I, for me personally, I, I would have found myself a failure. So... Um, it was a drive for me not to go back. But also as well as like, even my personal life, I, I haven't spoke to my dad in 20 years. So I I had to deal with other pressure. So when I was going to trials and stuff like that, I had to go on my own where you have family watching you. I, had, I was there by myself. So I had to like deal with that and get over that. And so I think when you look at the professional career, the the mindset you have to have is you've got to be, do it for yourself. It's got to be a selfish sort of, like your own, somebody said to me a few years ago, you're your own self-made business and you've got to do 
what you need to do to make you your business the best it can be. And that's obviously training your body, training your game and training your mind. So I think I probably had a, a little bit of advantage of, of my upbringing that gave me a bit of a mental strength. In terms of football then, when did you start playing? Um, well, I started off as a centre-half when I was like younger, eight, nine, because I was so tall. And then when I got to about 12 or 13, I didn't like the running side of it. I didn't like the everybody was quicker than me and I was playing centre-half and I was chasing little five-foot-two rapid centre-forward. So I thought um, it's time for a change. But a few years before I became a goalkeeper, I was playing centre-half for my team Sacred Heart and every time there was a penalty, I would have to go and goal. This is how harsh it is. Looking back now, it's really harsh on the goalkeeper, but the manager would stick me in to save the penalty and then come back out to play centre-half. So I got to, I think I was about 14 when a new team started up and they were looking for a goalkeeper called Crum and Star. And um, I went on trial just for, and got the, got the shirt and stayed in goal ever since. I know you're a giant of a man now, but back then, were you always one of the taller ones? Yeah, I was always tall. I was always tall and skinny. Um, I was like a little rake, really, really, really skinny. Um, but yeah. It wasn't really until I signed for Sunderland that I realised I had to get in the gym. So I didn't really touch a weight till I was 19. Now, I did a little bit in my, in my room. No, but you, it's not the same, is it? It's, it's not game related. Um, but yeah, I was always I was always a tall lad. So that's helped me with my Gaelic and my basketball. So that's where um, I used, well, I played a lot of hand-eye ball um, sports. Yeah, so a question we get asked a lot at the I2I Soccer Academy uh, you more so than me, is about scouting, how to get into a pro club. Obviously, it's a lot different now to what it used to be. Um, but were you just scouting playing at youth level? Is that how it works? Yeah, um, it was It was tough. It was tough for me um, being a Catholic um, back then in the late 90s because predominantly the school, the Belfast schools and all Ireland schools team was picked by the best Protestant manager and he would pick basically his team that he managed at school level. So he, it wasn't a job that it was personally just his job. He would have a school job and an all-around job. So I couldn't really get in. So didn't get really scouted there. Um, I got scouted when I was 15. I went to Peterborough. And then when I was 17, um, I went to Newcastle, but I got rejected at both trials. Um, then it wasn't really, it really took off when I signed for Cliftonville. And then as soon as I broke into the first team, I got invited to the Northern Ireland um, first team training. So I was a young lad training with a senior squad. I was invited along. And then obviously when that hit the press, um, it sends alerts to clubs. And then all of a sudden scouts come to watch me. And I think by the end of it, I had five, five or six clubs watching me by the, by the time Sunderland signed me. Yeah, you mentioned it there, but you started out with Cliftonville in Belfast and... This was essentially your first big step into the game, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, well, I'd done, I'd done a year under 16s and then the, the date of birth went back and I, I had to play another year under 16s. I was lucky enough. So when I was growing up in school, I always used to play against people in the year above. And my I never played against my teammates or school. So the last year I got a chance to play with or against my, my schoolmates. And then... I had about three or four Irish league clubs trying to sign me 
And as I mentioned, I didn't have a dad growing up, so there was no nobody to like speak to in, in my immediate family. So my mum went to my two uncles who have football backgrounds and said, what shall he do? And my uncle Jared said to me, he's going nowhere. He's coming to play with me at Malakines. And I, I kicked off. I said, no, I want to go and play. I want to go and play. He said, no, he's not ready yet. And I always say this, it was the biggest, best thing now when I look back that's ever happened to me because I was 17 and I played a year at the top amateur level and I got kicked from pillar to post. But it t- taught me how to deal with the physical side of the game. And I don't think if I had had that year, I wouldn't have been as successful at Cliftonville. Um, and the year that, that Cliftonville, I didn't go to Cliftonville, they actually won the league. So the year after I signed, um, I was number two behind, obviously I couldn't get in. It was a lad called Paul Reese. He was next QPR. He was flying in. We were a part-time team. He was flying in at the weekend. He was training on Thursday and then playing on a Saturday. So I was only really picking up, there was about four or five cup competitions in Northern Ireland. So I was picking up them odd cup, cup, cup games. But luckily I started to do well. And then he was having some personal problems. And the manager about December time turned and says to me, we're going to get rid of Reese and we're going to make you number one. And that was then, that was, that was a big, that was my big chance then. I knew I had to like get in and do well. Am I right in saying that you actually grew up near the ground of Cliftonville? Yeah, um, and we live around the corner. So, yeah, I was, I was a Cliftonville fan. Um, I only live about 300 yards away from it, uh, solitude. So, yeah, I, was a, I used to go with my friends all the time. Some of my friends still go and watch them. Um, yeah, so I was a Cliftonville fan growing up. It appears as though your career took off pretty quickly from this point, as you had a number of different clubs coming to watch you. Is that right? Yeah, it was... Um, People, people think it's all glamorous, the money you make, but I was on £25 a week at Cliftonville, um, obviously semi-pro. And then um, I broke into the first team and then on, I think it was Boxing Day, the newspaper, or the day after Boxing Day, there was a newspaper headline. It was all over the back page, uh, Michael set for Birmingham. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? I've never heard anything like this. And I thought, oh, here we go. And then about a week later, the manager came in the office and says, oh, we want to offer you professional terms. And I says, I'll oh, go on then. What are you offer me? He says, I'll give you £75 a week and 750 quid signing on. And I, I knew straight away it was just, I was all, because I was obviously, I was a young lad, but I was in a team full of veterans. And so I obviously seek their advice and they told me not to sign that contract because they said, you're going places. So they thought I was going to go over, we call it over the water. So I just said, no, but I'll, I'm willing to sign and improve. So I actually signed for £50 a week and then 500 quid. But back then, it was my night out money after the game on a Saturday. My friends, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So I was like buzzing with 50 quid. Um, so yeah, that was really then from then on. So about just before New Year's, I, I started like getting um, interest. And then I was playing, because I was young enough, I was playing first team and youth team. I'd only play a youth team in the youth cup because it's quite prestigious over there. So it was a semi-final away at Newry. Um, I turned round and there was Packy Bonner standing behind my goal. And obviously I'm a Celtic fan and I thought, what is going on? So at half time I'm going, oh, Packy Bonner's here. And one of the lads says, oh, he's chief scout for Reading. I went, ah, he's here watching me. So it was like starting to click on a little bit. So then... Step week by week, there was also more interest and more interest. And then by the end of the season, 
Um, I knew about three weeks before the end of the season that I was gone. Uh, there was a fee agreed with Sunderland, but I had to obviously finish out the season. Then, funny enough, my last game for Cliftonville was supposed to be the FA Cup final, but we got chopped out because we played an eligible player in the previous round. So my big swan song was ended by Simon Gruen. Eye to eye, we obviously have a lot of athletes who, who go for trials. Um, just explain what, what that process was like and how did you approach it at the time? I think going back to the Peterborough trials, I think you go in not really knowing what sort of standard it is because obviously you're playing and you go in and all of a sudden you get a big shock and then it's the nerves start hitting you and it's, it's probably dealing with the nerves. So I was better suited for the Newcastle trial when I was 17. So I went in and it was totally different this time. Um, with the Peterborough trial, I trained with the youth team. But with Newcastle, they brought me straight in and trained with Shaka Hislop, Pavel Cernicek, uh, Steve Harper and Shea Given. So I was training with them every day and it was like an unbelievable experience. When you signed for Sunderland, were you kind of dreaming of what was going to follow or were you quite level-headed as a teenager with your feet still firmly on the ground? No, I, I was always level-headed. I knew that it wasn't going to be, I'm going over to the Premier League. It wasn't, you know, I'm not jumping from Irish League into Premier League straight away. I, says, I knew within two weeks, I got pulled in the office and said, you're not here for the short term, you're here for the long term. And, you're going on a weights programme, you'll be missing sessions, you'll be in the gym more. So I was doing like four or five gym sessions a week. There was days where I couldn't get out of bed because my muscles had seized up. I was doing that much weights. So they were giving me days off. So they were really looking after me. Um, I went over and I think I put a stone of muscle on. I was 12 and a half stone when I joined at 19. And by the end of season one, I was 13 and a half stone and I was less body fat. So it just shows you the amount of work that, you know, the, I think it's more adapting, I thought it was for me. And then all of a sudden, I had, obviously I've mentioned this previous times in ID uh, clinics that I had international goalkeepers ahead of me and I wasn't anywhere near the Northern Ireland first team squad. So um, I think October time, I wrapped the door and I said to Peter Reid, I said, oh, can I go out and loan? And he went, what? You've only just got here. I says, I want to play games. And he went, oh, I like that. I says, I'll see what I can do. And then November, I signed for Carlisle on a month's loan. Now, I did that for the six... Oh, well, he was there for four years. I think I was in Reedy's office once every two months, asking him, can I go out on loan? Can I go out on loan? And he loved that for me. He, he knew that I didn't want to sit there and just pick up the money. He knew that I wanted to play games. I read this online, so it may, may not be true. Um, but didn't Rude Hullet try and sign you for Newcastle just before you signed for Sunderland? Is that correct? Yeah, it was... Um, so, obviously... I've had, I had the trial in Newcastle and I've flown over, they've flown me over with mum and my uncle um, to do the medical at Sunderland. And I think they've just come back from the end of season trip um, and they got back and there's a centenary game the day after. So Rudy's came into the medical room and he punched me three times in the arms and say, he looked up at me like how tall I was. And he went, you'll do for me, big man, you'll do for me. And he went, you're not going to Newcastle, by the way. I went, what do you mean? So I looked around and my agent stand beside me. He says, I wasn't going to tell you, but there's been two other bids from Middlesbrough and Newcastle. I says, I looked at my mum because I always take my mum's guidance. And my mum, she she got the feeling that I was going to be looked after here. And my mum's really nervous about like obviously letting her son go. And she says, Michael, just stay here. Will you please sign here? I says, yeah, no problem. So I just signed there. But then it was a funny story. We went, obviously, 
train with the first team. I got invited out for the first team after like we've had a bit of a break and you go out in Newcastle for a night out for a, for a drink and we bumped into Newcastle players on a night out and Quinny, no, Quinn's asked me to come over to be introduced to somebody and he's gone, oh, Shay, it's Michael, Michael, this is Shay and he's gone, no way, you've ended up here. I said, he said to me, I cannot believe they didn't sign you when you were 17. I said, gobsmacked he says did they give you a reason I said there was just no room because they had two players on the contract and they can't have another one but they're really really keen so they must have kept tabs on me for the two years after Do you ever wonder how your career might have gone if you had signed for Newcastle? Um, Maybe maybe it's like I wouldn't I always say I've, I've said this before I've, I've got no regrets and obviously I think in any situation I think the best problem Probably if you look back, if I, if I was to do it again, I would probably obviously sign for Middlesbrough because um, less internationals ahead of you. But like Shea Given and Steve Harper are two Premier League legends. And But then when you look at Middlesbrough's uh, production line, they produce young goalkeepers year in, year out. So it's, I think it'll just be equally as hard. Um, but I've got best friends now uh, that I've met from outside football in Sunderland. Um, one of them's my... Godfather for my daughter, so I wouldn't regret that because it's been it was for me that was my apprenticeship time. That six years at Sunderland was my apprenticeship time, and I would never change that. As you mentioned, um, Peter Reid was the manager that signed you for Sunderland. That must have been a daunting experience for a young teenager. Yeah, definitely, especially the first day when I made a big boop. Of, um, oh, so I read about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he. Um, my my mum obviously every year would bring me and my sister away on holiday and we booked it she booked it months and months and months in advance because obviously she doesn't know anything about football and so we've the 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 holiday was the first two weeks of July but the the preseason was um, starting on the fourth of July and he says oh so in the medical room he says to me I'll see you on the fourth of July and I've looked round to my mum and mum's looked at me and he goes what's up and he's Said, um, I said, oh, my mum's booked Spain for two weeks. He went, tell you what, get off, enjoy your time, your mum and your sister, and come back when you're ready. So I flew back on the 14th, but my flight was delayed when I came in. So I rushed into training, get my training gear on. All lads are out training. I'm late. Nothing to do with that. And he's walked through the door. And he goes, all right, big man, are you ready to, ro- ready to go? And I went, yeah, Peter, no problem. And he went, you don't call me that here, son. You call me gaffer. And I went, all right. I says... Uh, when I was back home, I called my manager, Marty Quinn. Marty, he said, no, you're not there anymore, you're here. And then that, for me, was just, you're now in the big game. <laughs> Get your head in the game, so to speak. You speak quite fondly of Peter Reid. Was he good for you in the end? Oh, he's brilliant. I mean, I think people were scared of him, and and rightly so. He's, he's that sort of character. But I think we had a mutual... Uh, understand with each other that I wanted to play games and he was always like to look after me um, so there's plenty of times where we've been in uh, uh, he was always there was one time at the end of the season I was obviously got a squad number I was training with the first team I think it was the first season we finished seventh um, he put up the trip at the end of the season from Marbella so we uh, uh, every Friday he used to run over to the board check the squad but this time I wanted to check the Marbella squad because I knew there was people fit, so I wasn't going to be in the first-team squad. But I was hoping that, because it was the last game of the season, he might put me on the bench. So I've gone down the first team, not on the first-team squad. Marbella, not on the list. So I've walked away. Oh, God, so Quinny again. Somebody looked after me. Now Quinn looked at me and goes, what's up? 
says, I'm not on the list tomorrow, but he went, what? He says, give me a minute. So he walks into the gaffer. Gaffer's been in the shower. He comes through with a towel wrapped around. He goes, sorry. And he wrote my name in the bottom of the pen. <laughs> so it was like, he always says, oh, sorry, mate. I forgot all about you. He says, you were supposed to go. So he was always like, he was brilliant. Really, really good for me. Um, you touched on it briefly earlier, um, but you then get sent out on loan to Carlisle United and you made your Football League debut against Southend, I believe. Can you remember much about that match? Yeah, I just remember being really nervous the very first game because it was obviously biggest crowd in England I've played in front of. And I thought, oh, I'm nervous. And there's a new... I think I've signed on the Friday. Um, I think I trained on the Friday morning, signed in the afternoon and played on the Saturday. Or it was a Monday or the Tuesday. I think it was the Tuesday night game was my first game. I just remember being really, really nervous and getting through it. But then as the games went by, I started settling more and I thought, this is a bit of me. I need to play more of this. I need this experience. I need this, like, dealing with crowds, dealing with the pressure and dealing with, obviously, the speed of play. So It's a bit of a standard question, really, but I know a lot of our guys in the academy suffer with nerves before games. Um, how did you deal with nerves in, in your career? Um, I, think, I think with time, really, I think... It's good to have nervous energy, but how you sometimes it drains you of energy, and sometimes it spurs you on, and sometimes it you no, know, it's it's how you deal with it. Um, but I'd say as as the years went on or games went on, it, it slowly went away. And then, and then even when people say to me now, when you played for like Northern Ireland and Wembley, were you nervous? And I says no, because you've obviously dealt. You get in the mindset it's just another game, and you do the same things. That's what I try to say to young lads. Is, it's the same size of pitch. It's the same number of players you're playing against. It's the same size of ball, but you have your game process in your head instead of what's going on around you. Um, so, yeah, I dealt with it as, probably as time went by. Am I right in saying that after that you went back to Cliftonville? Yeah, it was um, was coming up to the end of the first season and we went into pre-season, the second season, and straight again I went in the office and said, I want to play. I'm not going to play much here. And, it was trying to really look around, but it's really tough in pre-season because obviously clubs sign uh, goalkeepers and you're, you're waiting for a, God forbid, like a bad injury to a goalkeeper at a certain club so you can get in or a goalkeeper leaves. But uh, I was just unlucky, really. There was, wasn't any clubs available for me to go to. So um, he says, your old clubs put an offer in, but I want I give it another three or four weeks to see if something else opens up. And I said, that's totally fine. And then three weeks later, he says, you go back to Clinville, but you're training here Monday to Friday. So it was an agreement where I trained Monday to Friday at Sunderland, flew in Friday night, flew back Sunday and trained again Monday to Friday. How tough was that for you mentally then to deal with going back? Or were you somewhat at ease knowing you'd be comfortable playing every week there? It was a big wake-up call for me because I went in, relaxed thinking I was better than this and it was the best thing I ever done because my form in my second spell for Clinville was nowhere near as good as my form two years earlier so it was, a, it was a big learning curve for me and I'm glad I did it because I came back thinking I can't take my foot off the pedal anymore it needs to be 100% so I think it was more of a mindset thing where I, I'm Premier League baby and I'm coming back here and it's going to be easy for me but it wasn't it wasn't at all it was more mistakes and stuff like that so and plus, at the same time, I was still probably learning to deal with my new body, you know, more muscle, more size, more, you know what I mean, new techniques that I've made and stuff like that. So it was more like development. So I always say, and people say to me, you think Sunderland, the Premier League club, was your apprenticeship, but I was a novice. 
Do you know what I mean? I, the first time I had a goalie coach was when I went to Sunderland and I was 19. And that's, that's what I keep saying to our American goalkeepers now. You're so lucky to have a goalie coach. I mean, you've, you've had some of you have had goalie coaches since you were 12. I, there was no such thing as a goalie coach back then in Northern Ireland. There was no trade as a goalie coach. There was no goalie coaches and even in the Irish League. It was just you turned up, did a warm-up and played. So I was still learning the game, really, and that's why I think it was a really good thing I went back to Clinville, but not really good for them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, at Sunderland, you were competing against Thomas Meyer, I think, and Mark Poom. How difficult was that for you? Like you said, you were in the international picture at the time. They both were full internationals. Were you thinking, I've got no chance here, or were you kind of thinking, I've just got to keep working hard and see what happens? I... I always went in every day and worked hard. And I always remember, like, like the lads, when you go in, you meet the first team, you get obviously known nicknames and stuff like that. So Tommy Mara got a nickname, Tommy Volterol, which is a anti-inflammatory. So he, always, he was always injured. So that gives you a little spur, like you've got to be ready in case you're on the bench and you're on the bench. And I was always there and I always thought to myself, I can learn things off. Different, different people, like Thomas Mara, agility, unbelievable. Pumi, dealing with crosses, brilliant. Tom, Thomas Sorensen, all round, like his hands were ridiculous. He never dropped a ball, but he was bad on crosses. So you're just taking little bits off them and trying to like piece them together for yourself and trying to come up with the best version of you. Um, but it was, it, was, it was tough. And I think the toughest one was when Peter E got sacked and I just signed a new four-year deal um, in the January, I think he came in in the February or March, and his first signing was Pumi. And I thought, now I've got Tommy Sorensen, I've got Jurgen Macho, Austria's number one, I've got Tommy Mara, and I've got Pumi. So I'm now fifth choice behind four internationals. So I've gone in the office and said, well, I need to leave. And he went, I don't want to go on loan. And he went, what are you, Joya? And I says, 21 at the time. And he went, oh, I like my goalkeepers to be 25, 26. So we're going to sign you on loan for four years. I'm thinking my time here is done. So I went alone. I think I went alone to York. And I came alone to York. And then obviously, how Wilkes had got sacked. And um, my granddad had fallen ill. So I flew back from Belfast. And yet again, I missed the York one because of the flight. And I got into someone late and jogged around the pitch. Mick McCarthy called me over and he said, um, I know a couple of clubs are interested in you, big clubs, but you're going nowhere. You're going to sit on the bench for me next year in the championship. There you go. So in the space of three months, you're going from not really having a future to all of a sudden being number two. Yeah, just go, just going back slightly, uh, Sunderland recalled you from Cliftonville um, and then they handed you your debut in the League Cup against Sheffield Wednesday, I believe. Was that an experience you look back on fondly? Yeah, definitely. Because um, it got me my new contract. Um, because um, I give away a penalty. I brought down F and a cuckoo um, for a penalty and then he slotted it away. And then we went 2-2 two, two, and then a, an Italian lad, um, I can't remember his name, scored, scored an overhead kick from about 17 yards out into the top corner. And I thought, oh my God, this is not my luck. But the next day we got back and Reedy brought in the office and he gave me a brown envelope and I, he goes, there's your new contract. I went, hey. He said, because you know what you showed me last night? You showed me you've got a bit of cojones. I didn't say the other word, cojones, because you've given away a penalty and then you've kept us in the game. So you didn't like, you know, go under. You rose to the challenge and it was a full house against Chef Webb because obviously some of them bring fans away and 
drove. So we filled out, I think, half the stadium in the League Cup game. So it was a full house. Um, you endured various loan spells, as you've mentioned. Um, you went out to Stoke City, um, Stockport County and a few others. That must have been difficult to never really settle down anywhere. Yeah, it was, well, it was a bit frustrating after the Carlisle one because then I was going in, so I went into Stockport and it was, our goalkeeper's not really doing well, so just waiting for one more bad game, then you'll be in. But then when you go in and he sees you come through the change room, he raises his game. Do you see what I mean? And then all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, I'm sitting on the bench. And then after a month, so he, Carton Palmer's asking me to sign another month. And I'm going, I may as well go back to Sunderland and go somewhere else. And it's the same deal at Stoke. Gavin Ward broke his arm. Neil Cutler was number one. He started playing well, couldn't get in. So it was frustrating. And then I went to the Darlington one. And then I started playing. Andy Collar got injured, started playing, doing really, really well. Played the last game at Hull. Um, and then at Bouverie Park. And then at half five, I was in the change room. The manager pulled me. I was only three games into the loan. And he said to me, you've been recalled. You're sitting on the bench tomorrow at Anfield. I went, wow. So the goalkeeper got injured. So I was like, I played on the Saturday for Darlington. And I sat on live on Sky on Sunday on Anfield in the Premier League. And then the Tuesday night, I went back to Hull and opened the new stadium as a visiting goalkeeper. So I created history in three three days because of an injury. Would you say that those loans were genuinely beneficial to you in your career? 100%. Without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the longevity of my career if I had to sat on the backside at Sunderland and played reserve team football. There was no 23s then. It was reserve team football. Um, by getting out, I was obviously impressing Dennis Smith I impressed the people at York City for they to come back and sign me. Um, so yeah, I was coming out and like put my name about and like impressing people that was playing for and against. So when I became available after I decided to leave Sunderland, there was always them sort of managers trying to sign me. How tough was it to have to ask to leave Sunderland in the end, or was it quite an easy decision for you because you were just so focused on being number one somewhere else? Do you mean the loans or the, at the end? At the end. At the end, it was it was basically you were getting a real taste for it now, and you were, I was feeling for myself that ready, I'm now ready to be number one, and um, I'd just gone to Wrexham. I'd gone to Rex. No, I went to Doncaster. I went to Doncaster and came back with an AC injury in my shoulder. I was out for six months, and I was I was number three. Um, we had I think we had Pumi and then Bananic, or Bananic was playing. Anyway, I was, wasn't involved. And then I just got fit. And it was the biggest game live on Sky at Ipswich. And this is where I get most stick from Sunderland fans. I get stick. Um, Gaffer goes in and goes, you're playing tomorrow, bolting away in the reserves, 45 minutes. And then you're playing live on Sky. And we needed a point on Sunday to get promoted. Because Ben Anik, unfortunately, one of his best friends had passed away. He's got, he's off. So you're going to play. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm just out for six months. But the second goal, I think it, I think it was 1-1 one, one or 2-2. Two, two. I think it was 1-1. One, one. And it's the goal I messed up for, I came for a corner, dropped it and the scored. And then I got absolute dog abuse. And I didn't really get much support other than from Gary Breen in the press after. Gary Breen came out and said, hold on, lay off him. The lad's been out for six months. He's been thrown in the deep end. And he's done a job for us. We got the point. Let's move on. So then I went in the office in the summer and Mick McCarthy said to me, I'm going to give you another year. I want you to stay around and be like, no challenge. I says, no, it's my time to go. 
And he says, I totally understand. And that was it. He says, I had Dennis Smith at Wrexham, like, really interested in me. And I thought, I want to go back there and play. We'll obviously get onto York City in more detail a bit later on. Um, but you joined on loan initially. Did you know in his first spell that this was going to be the club for you? Um, being totally honest, not really. Um, it wasn't a club like all the other clubs. It wasn't really um, because you, you've got you've got your sights higher. No disrespect to the clubs, and that sounds really I don't know. It might sound come across a bit arrogant, but at that time, at a young age, you got your sights higher. Going on loan to get the experience to try and propel myself more into like the Premier League or Championship and then obviously to try and get more games in Northern Ireland. But I loved my time at York City. So when obviously I've dropped down and it didn't really happen for me and they came available, I jumped at the chance. But if you had asked me back in 2002 would I have signed, I would have said no because I had Celtic looking at me, I had Arsenal looking at me to, to go there and there's a big gap, if you know what I mean. Would that have been the pinnacle for you then, signing for Celtic? Yeah, well, I was busting the sign. Mick McCarthy won't let me go, so <laughs> I had to stay. Um, they were they were watching me while I was at York, um, and I had a really good spell when I was at York. I think I kept seven clean sheets in 17 games, and we nearly got into League Two playoffs. Um, and there was obviously, my agent was telling me, they're watching, they're really interested. And I was going, please, can you force it? But he said, you can't put a transfer request in because you're might not happen. I said, I was all right, fair enough. So I was waiting for a concrete offer before trying to push it, but it never happened. Just going back to Sunderland for a second, am I right in saying that you were involved in some transfer deadline day drama with Coventry back in the day? Um, there was it. probably just over loans. The, the one club that I always remember that always tried to sign me and I kept saying no because I don't know what it was when I was a young lad, but I didn't want to go to London. I just didn't want to go. I don't know why, but it was South End. South End must have tried to sign me about six or seven times alone, but I kept just kept saying no. So if you look at my loans, they're all north clubs. I always just stay up north because I didn't I didn't really want to go down there and be too far away from Sunderland in case something happened. So um yeah, there was there was always I mean, as you know, like transfer deadline days hectic and you, you especially if you're not involved in the first team, you're always on standby in case, but there's always two or three gaffer collie in and say, we've got this, this and this, but they're waiting on somebody else moving out before you get in. And then nine times out of 10, it falls through. Yeah. Just looking at your Sunderland debut, your full debut, that is, that will still be an extremely proud moment for you. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was quite surreal really, because it was the day after 9-11. So we were, we were driving down. We, we didn't, we didn't, obviously, because it was so close, didn't fly down. We didn't do the train. We went down on the bus. And I just remember the bus being like, you could hear a stone drop. We had the news on on the TVs on the on the bus. And we were just like, we couldn't believe what was happening. And then there was a there was a question mark over, because obviously how tragic it was, there was a question mark whether the game would go ahead because they were talking about suspending it to you know, pay condolences to people that lost loved ones. So... But then was, all of a sudden it was just thrown in. So I remember, I don't really remember the, the warm-up. I don't really remember. I just remember the game just like embracing it and really loving it and thinking, oh, this is more, I want more of this. It was really, but I don't know. I'd give away a penalty and see an overhead kick. So I thought, oh my God. Now I've taken this quote from the internet again, so it may not be accurate, but the manager at the time, Mick McCarthy, apparently said, 
He knows he's playing for a future elsewhere. And I think that overall, he's handled a tense situation really well. That must be quite a strange situation to be in at that time. We had a little bit of an argument. I wouldn't say a fallout. We had an argument because I was number two all year. And I think we got to the semi-final FA Cup. And Wrexham came in for me and I said, I don't want to go. I want to, I want to stay here and sit on the bench in the, in the FA Cup. And he turned and says to me, if you don't go, you won't play for the club again. So I thought, all right, I'll have to go. But then obviously when I came back, I've done well at Wrexham. He's off, like, we're talking about a new contract. And I said, I don't think so. I think it's, it's time for me to move on. And then, then I have a mindset. I just want to move on and try to be a number one. Your departure from Sunderland quickly turned around there, didn't it? Um, as you happened to make your international debut for Northern Ireland just a few months later. Yeah, well, I was in squads for a while and I knew it was it was there. there. Well, I, sh- I should have made my debut in, away at St Kitts and Nevis. So we went on a Caribbean tour and the second game, uh, Lloyd Sanchez has pulled me before the, train, the day, training the day before. He's put... He's pulled me and says, we're giving you a debut tomorrow night. So we've just done a light session. Um, goalie coach Dave Bessence put a bouncing ball in. I flick one round the post and I've gone, oh, finger. So I've took my glove off and my finger's hanging like this. So the physios came running on. He says, it looks, we're going to pop it back in. He says, it's just a dislocation. He says, if there's no crack, you can play tomorrow night. I says, right, no problem. Because obviously Northern Ireland have to look after like the physios back at your parent club. So I've gone and I remember this really, really small hospital and there was loads of army around it. And I was sitting there for hours and I'd gone in, got my scan, came back out. And there was a hairline fracture. I thought, God. So I've gone back in, gone back to the hotel. Laurie Sanchez has pulled me. He said, I'm good for you because I was going to play in the next game as well against Trinidad and Tobago. So you would have had two caps. I was gutted. He says, you can go home by yourself or stay out here and just have a holiday. So that's right. So I, so I was... There was training set. It was like a 10, 14 day trip. And there was training sessions. I was coming along just like watching. And one day he said to me, oh, we need an extra body. Do you want to train? So I started playing up front in training. I banged a few goals in. So he told me to get stripped against Trinidad and Tobago. So I was sitting on the bench with a strip on. And I thought, he said to me, no, not the goalkeeping strip. I want you to wear an outfit strip. No way. So I was like, no way. So I'm sitting on the bench and thinking, no way. So about 20 minutes to go, he pulls me and goes, do you want to go on? And I, I wish I had said yes, but I said no, because I'd rather make my debut as a goalkeeper than a centre forward. But if I had done it now, I could have been a history maker. Wow. Yeah, I was too stubborn. I was too stubborn. <laughs> that, that would have been something. would love to see you up top one day. Eh? Moving on to some more happier times. Um, you made your debut coming on against Germany. Can you remember some of the Germans that were playing that day? Uh, I think Oliver Kahn, Michael Ballack, Podolsky. Um, I just remembered all of a sudden, wow, this is even quicker than Premier League. It's rapid. So I just remember going off the bench. Mike's, Mike's come off. I mean, Mike's a big hero of mine, looked up to me, looked after me. There's something to look up to. He's given me a hug and I've gone on. And it's obviously at Linfield. So the rivals of um, Cliftonville and I thought am I going to get booed here or am I going to get cheered and I got the biggest stand ovation ever and all of a sudden I just went wow and I got a little bit emotional and then obviously I got into the game I think we're 3-1 down and the three balls came out and I think oh this is you come start sprinting out trying to slide out who's running at me Podolsky with afterburners on and he's just gone touch finish and I've gone 
welcome to national football. <laughs> he was <laughs> rapid. <laughs> I'd have thought, oh, I need to get it quicker next time or a higher start position. But it was just, it was brilliant for me. It was just like a really, really proud moment for me. Yeah, I think you've actually gone on record and said you were, you were holding back the tears when you came on due to the reception that you got from the crowd. How do you possibly keep yourself together in that moment then? It was just a minute. It was like a split second thing because obviously, obviously we talked about the situation in Northern Ireland and I've, I've lived away from it for four or five years. But I mean, back in the days when we played Linfield, I was like hated amongst Linfield fans because I was always like doing stupid things, like winding them up behind the goals and stuff like, like you. that. I was just like stupid. Um, but so I didn't really know what, what sort of reaction I was going to get. So when I got it, I mean, obviously... Northern Ireland fans are not all Linfield fans. I mean, they're obviously fans from all around Northern Ireland. So when I got it, but it was mainly the cop and the cop gave me the, the stand ovation. And it was like, wow, I was running in. And I just took a few more seconds. And I think I had a towel with me and I threw it down and pretended to rub my hands with a towel and got a drink of water and just composed myself. And then you're back into click mode again. You click back into game mode. Yeah, but it was really, really, um, really, 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 really nice uh, reception. A couple of months later, you're actually in a squad where Northern Ireland beat England 1-0 in the World Cup qualifier. Imagine you were really enjoyed being a part of that one. Yeah, I was on the bench. Um, so, obviously, I think back in the days, and obviously the squad's changed now. We um, Back in the day, we the gap between ourselves and the, the big countries was far bigger than what it is now. Um so the whole week, Laurie Sanchez was brilliant. It's just press and we worked on a game plan. And I always remember the kickoff, Jimmy Quinn, James Quinn, the player for Peterborough, sent it forward. He was the target man for us. The England kicked off and I think he chased down Ashley Cole. Ashley Cole tried to clip one up the line and he's blocked it and the whole place just erupted. So it was just, that would give us a lift. That was like set the standards. So from then on, it was just press. Everybody's working hard. But all my time in football, I've never seen a team work as hard as we did that night. And that, that's the only way we would have won the game. And we were just waiting on that one or two opportunities. And obviously, we've got somebody as good as Davy Healy up front that can put things away. So we, we, we got the goal and we managed to shut them out. Mike's come for up team corners and tuck it and made up team saves. And he's had a great night as well. But sometimes Mike's performance doesn't really get talked about. Yeah, just to give people an idea of who was in the England team at that time, you had. Rio Ferdinand, Ashley Cole, David Beckham, Wayne Rooney, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen. I could go on. Can you remember the game quite clearly then? I remember just on the bench. I remember, I remember like nowadays when you're, even when I'm playing for Taddy and you're on the bench or you're injured on the bench, you only allow two people standing up. But I think for the last half an hour of the game, the whole bench was like arms right at each other for half an hour, just willing it to finish. We were just like willing and then we, I think we'd done about eight laps of Windsor Park at the end. It was just like, but people always say, oh, you lapped it up. But you've got to understand, like, we are a small country. I mean, we used to hashtag, we exist and are we country. It's just, it was an unbelievable night. And then to do it again, um, Roy was fit at the time, was third choice. He was in the stands against Spain to beat Spain before when they went on that magnificent run. I think they won Euros, World Cup Euros or whatever they won four years unbeaten. We were the last time to beat them. It was just like, that shows that we, that wasn't a one-off of England. It was something really special. And I think we jumped around about 90 places from about 120 to 27 in the world. We jumped ridiculous amount of places. 
at the end of that season, you go on to make your first international start against Uruguay in New York, of all places. That must be the proudest moment of your career. Yeah, it was brilliant. And like I've said it before on a, on a video of Eye to Eye that obviously, oh, okay, Mike's not probably decided to come or Roy's injured or whatever, but you're the next available. So you're on that day, you're the best goalkeeper that the country could pick. So it's like something that's never going to be taken away from you. And I just remember to get a giant stadium and it was like a 3G and it was like massive stadium. And then, then the warm up, it was, you know, here we've got like a, a grassy 3G. It was more of a, like a shorter 3G and it, it used to zip off a bit more. So you're just trying to get your, your pace of the pitch ready. And then all of a sudden I think Alvaro Rocoba has cut inside and absolutely smashed one. And I've gone full pelt top corner. I think I've covered it, but it's like swazzing all over the place and landing in the top corner. So if anybody sees me, you can just see me waving at an unbelievable strike, just waving past it. I actually watched this goal in preparation for, for doing this podcast. I had it down as Fabian Estoinoff that scored the goal, though. Oh, was it? I thought somebody was... I was... Rokoba signs better. I've never seen it before, so I watched it and thought, wow, absolute screaming for about 32, 33 yards. I mean, what a goal that was. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even... Like, sometimes the goalkeeper stops and just watches it, but I remember just getting after it and thinking, I've got full full top corner here, and it's still, still whiz past me. Uh, moving back to your club career now, you ended up going back to York City on a permanent basis. Did you ever envisage that you'd go on to make over 300 appearances for the club and keep over 100 clean sheets? No, not really. Um, I had a bit of a, um, I would say, a season where I signed a Hereford just to stay in the game because I got injured at uh, Wrexham, or hamstring, and gone to Hereford late August before I signed so I was, I was out of football for two months I missed the pre-season and I was in a team that got promoted from League 2 goalkeeper got players play of the season fans play of the year so I was just thinking I was on a trip to promotion trip to Ayanapa thinking to myself where do I go from here um, so I got a phone call from Graham Turner and he says oh, I'm going to give you another two year deal but you're too good for me to sit on the bench you need to go and play so I drove up to York um, I give them the first option because obviously before I really enjoyed the town and the city and obviously the ground and the people that was there before so I went up and I was really wanted that's all I really want I wanted to be number one I really wanted to have that feel of being wanted and I got that from the chairman and obviously Colin Walker and I signed a two year deal and and it was for me, my thoughts on weren't getting back up the leagues at the time. It was just trying to get as many games as I can. I needed to play again. I didn't really have my career where I was playing for year after year after year. So I just thought whatever happens, happens. And then I think very quickly I fell in love with the place. And there was numerous number of times I've had the opportunity to leave York, but I just wanted to stay because um, I really enjoyed being here. And I always thought that after about three or four years at York that I could, could end up living here. So you get all the way to Wembley in your very first season. What was it like walking out there for the first time? It, it was quite... Um, what's the word? It was more... It was a strange feeling because... I've said this before, and no, no disrespect to York fans, but they probably agree with me that we were walking into defeat, really. It was going to have to be another Northern Ireland v England performance because... We had just missed out. We just stayed up that year. Uh, we had the, we stayed, I think we finished about 20th in the league. Um, 
we had it was a transition period for the club, bringing in obviously the year before I joined, they missed out in the playoffs, and then there was an, obviously a hangover from it. And then obviously the season was up and down, but we had a really good run with Foley in the trophy. But unfortunately, we we, we ended up playing against Stevenage that romped the league by about 15, 17 points, and they had such a strong team under Graham Wesley. So it was going to be one of them performances, and we knew, but it was more of a a day out really and that's really sounds really bad but we give it a, we give it our all but we got beat 2-0 but I think we were never really really in the game we had a couple of opportunities but I don't think they really got out of third gear So you as players walked out on that day thinking in a way we're going to get beat here Not, not get beat I wouldn't say get beat I would say it'd be more of it was an uphill task if you know what I mean. No, don't get me wrong, we've never gone in. Like I don't think there was a player that never gave 100%. I think we give it our best shot, but we knew they were superior than us. I know they're in the same league and you say that, but it's probably, I don't know, like a, if, you, if you go back to Premier League, something like a West Brom v Man City in a final. Do you know what I mean? Nobody really expected us to win it. Nobody outside of the, out of the, out of, uh, the two clubs expected us to win it. So um, I won't say... we. I probably that's wrong what I said about we we were expecting defeat, but we were we were expecting a really really tough game, and it would it would have to be something really special for us to win that one. When I was going through your career in preparation for for this chat with you today, um, at this point especially, all I kept seeing was Wembley, Wembley, Wembley. How many times have you actually played there? I played four, played four times. So the first two times we got beat, and then we've done the Wembley twice. To, I had to like hopefully rectify it and. Thankfully, I did before I finished my career because I didn't really want to end my career with four Wembley appearances and four defeats. So, yeah, the second game was playoff final against Oxford. Uh, a goal that gets mentioned a lot by York City fans, uh, my fault. Um, skiddy, wet, lashing day, rain, um, ball came over the top. The three or four that's came through before has skidded on through to me. Thought this one's going to come through at the edge of the box, came out, it slowed up. Constantine, he's actually ripped my shorts, put the leg down the side. So as they're celebrating the goal, I'm changing my shorts. So nobody remembers that. But then he passes it back, passes it back. By this time, I'm running the goal and the lad spanks it top corner. So it still could have been prevented, but my initial mistake. So York City fans, I get a bit of stick for that one. So yeah, then Clarkey for Oxford. He doesn't. He always laughs with me. We follow each other on social media. He laughs about me. He says, "Thank God we won that because my mistake never gets mentioned." He's his one was worse than mine. We put a cross right on top of him, no pressure. It slipped through his gloves, and we've had a tap in. So yeah, we were we were in the game. We had chances. Um, was a we had chances right up. We were two one down with I say the last half an hour. We must have had about four or five good chances. I remember Alex Laws had a good chance. Michael Rankin had an unbelievable chance. And then they've just scored on the break because we're going numb. They've scored last minute to make a 3 1. But I think we had a, actually got a goal before 85 minutes, we would have won that game. So obviously, you lose your first two appearances at Wembley. Going into the third appearance there, what's your mindset going into that one then? Totally different, completely different. Relax. You know what's expected. You know the surroundings. You know what it's like. You know the pitch. You know. The preparation, what time you got to be there, so it's totally different. We had a core of players that had obviously played before, so we're luckily we had Danny Parslow and 
uh, David McGurk that uh, been long servants, so they were there for the experience. But I always remember, I always say this, and to when I when I get asked to do question answer sessions at York City, it's like I knew we would have won twice at Wembley when we beat Mansfield in the semi final. I just knew it because no matter what happened in the Newport game, that was just a day out where we knew that we were the flip side of it. We knew that we were the Stevenage compared to Newport. We had the we were the ball playing team. We could score goals. We, we beat Newport um, previous times and stuff like that. We were really confident, and it was to give the others that day out, that experience before the bigger one, the, the week after. So your Matty Blurs, your Banges, and all them boys, they got that experience. So I knew because we had the two games in a row that we would have won the playoff final, and we already had Luton's number. They didn't know how to beat us. The record against Luton's something scary, but. Then again, if you look where they are now, where York are now, it's, it shouldn't really have happened. Yeah, I won't mention that. So you win at Wembley well, twice in just over a week. That must have been some party. Well, we had a party. The, the, we played on the Saturday and the chairman had booked, which is now Tank and Paddle in town. He booked that out. So we, we had a day out in, on the Sunday and then we had Monday off. And then we got back to training. But as soon as we won, the only bad thing about... The second one is me and the captain got selected for drugs testing. So I've run off the pitch and the physio stopped me as I get off because I didn't know this until then. Once you leave the pitch, you're in char- you're in the hands of the drug tester. So you can't go back onto the pitch. So he says to me, get back on the pitch, enjoy as much as you can because you're going to miss out on all the change room. So I remember we went round and um, the Luton captain and the Luton centre-half, there's we're sitting here, we're winning winners' medals around our necks, and them two are devastated they've just lost. And I just remember saying to them too, I said, lads, keep your heads up. I said, I'll tell you what, do you want a beer? And he says, oh, I would love a beer. See, their season's over as well. So I said to the drugs tester, I says, can I get some beers instead of drinking water for these drugs tests? He said, that's fine. So I, was, I was only trying to pull his leg because I thought he was going to say, no, you're not allowed any alcohol in the system. So I'm, <laughs> you're not allowed to leave the room. So I opened the door, I went, Doc! Doc, shouting him down Wembley corridor. He's coming around. What's up? Get me a box of beer in the cheese room. Next thing, the dog's <laughs> come around with a bottle of beer in his table. I just plonked it in the middle, and the four of us are just drinking like that, waiting for the first one to go in to get his drugs test done. <laughs> wow, it's never straightforward with you, is it, Ingy? Well, I missed out the celebration in the change room, so I had to celebrate one way or another. <laughs> After nine years at York, you opt for a different challenge and decide to join. Tadcaster Albion, um, who, if you aren't aware, are affiliated with I to I. Was that a difficult move for you to make in your career at that time? Not in a football sense, but I'll explain the football sense at the, at the start. It's like obviously, um, I had nine years because I used the loan at the loan year because you can use it if you go on loan if you play for a club on loan. You can use that year towards the testimonial. So I, I played nine different seasons for York. So I went in and they offered me a new one-year contract and um, it was a bit of a pay cut, but I didn't mind that. So I asked, I says, oh, there's no mention on my testimonial. And they went, we're not going to give you one because we're not recognising you loan year. And I says, that's me done. I says, I've had enough now. So I was mentally done uh, with the pro side and I thought to myself, I'm going to try and get a... Uh, steal on other people and try and get into the coaching side so lucky enough I to I give me a job as a coach and 
I wasn't really, no disrespect to Terry, I wasn't really, I had my eyes on that at the start. It was, um, I had a couple of conversations with part-time clubs in the same league as York or league below um, to play. And then all of a sudden I thought to myself, I'm going to be working 10 hour days and I don't really want to be traveling. And at my age, I don't want my back to be stiffening up and the money wasn't really anything special. So I just thought, I'll go to Matt and say, are you interested? Can we talk about tarrying? And all of a sudden it came, but that was there was no problem with me dropping down that level. My, my, my mind, that mentality, that mind is I would play anywhere, but it was just I got a little bit frustrated with the the mentality of players that I was playing with. And there's no disrespect to the players I play with. It was just getting them to realize the way I was when I went on the Clevel alone, that things don't get handed to you. There was people going, I was playing with players with a lot of ability that were just going through the motions. Now, I remember the first two or three years just always put my arm around, you've got to work harder. It just, it won't get handed to you. You've got to make it happen. And then it was just that side of it. Once I got my head around that, I was fine with it all. So you were, what, 35, 36 when you joined Tagcaster. Many would have retired at that point. What made you want to carry on? Um... I just, I was, I always, I always, I, I probably since the turn of 30, I always said to myself that other people's opinions don't matter to me. And that what, when I finished the pro game, I knew I could have played another two or three years in this conference or league two. And that's not me being arrogant. I just know that. My last game as a pro was man of the match away at Morecambe in League Two. So I know I could have played another two or three years. That's not that wasn't what it was. And I just thought to myself, it's about time I give something back to like younger lads. So I had the I had the impression of just going to Tarry for one or two years to play with my days, enjoy a bit of crack with the lads. Um not as much pressure, obviously, no disrespect to Tarry, you know what I mean, slower mm-hmm. league and just playing it out. But then all of a sudden it was can you play another year for us? Can you play another year for us? And then it was just, it turns from one year, it turns into five. And I've absolutely, I've absolutely enjoyed every single minute of playing for Tarry. It's been absolutely brilliant. It's a fantastic little club, um, supported, surrounded by fantastic people. And it's from the day I walked in till now, it's grew. It's just grew and grew and grew. And you must have really enjoyed playing the same teams, yeah? As your good friend and colleague John O'Greening. Yeah, I always remember. I got him once. It was really good. It was way at Bamber Bridge. He, uh, Connor Sal was on a counter attack. It would have been an unbelievable ball, but he put his big head in front of it and I smacked him on the temple. I thought I knocked him out, but luckily he got back up. But yeah, he was brilliant. John was, I mean, I knew John, obviously, we were probably friendly when we worked at York City. We'd talk a lot to each other, but we've become really good friends now. and it's somebody like that's probably something I really haven't really talked about eye to eye is like I was only a, I've only coached a year and a half at York City before I joined um, eye to eye and to learn off people like Crazy and Yozza John O Chris Holloway Blunty um, the list just goes on no Cy Collins and Maggie Morton unbelievable I mean it's just a learning experience that I've had and grew as a coach has been I don't think I would have got there any, that anywhere else just going back to Jono for a second, I remember 
when he tried his hand at goalkeeping that time in training last year. Has he got a future as a goalkeeper, do you reckon? Well, he was tripping on like he wanted to go and goal. So I got him, I, I think I ran to the car at training and gave him the gloves and he, he did a bit. And then I think he was stiff for about five days after. He says, never, ever again. So it's it's a totally different position when you get them old hips to hit that rock hard floor and get back up again. It's a totally different kind of fitness. I mean, goalkeepers can't run, but outfield players can't hit the deck. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I just remember you shouting John Burridge at him all the time. Yeah, well, I thought at one time I thought he had a ball under his top. I thought he was trying to take a ball home. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Um, bit of a gear change here, but you seem very passionate about mental health and the mental side of the game. On your Twitter, for example, I've seen tweets and you've also done videos for us as a company on World Mental Health Day, for example. I guess it's somewhat of an open-ended question, but what's your past experiences of mental health been like? Well, it came to a fore in a big, big way when I was 23 or 24. Um, I was in a change room at Sunderland and um, you have to have your phone off at a certain time at the club and just about to put my phone in the locker and put on silent. My phone went, Govies, uh, one of my teammates from school. And I thought, well, he just usually messaged me. He says, what's he ringing me in a day like this? And he's rang me and just said, um, Gilly's killed himself. And I've just dropped, like, just like a stone I mean didn't know what to do I remember I had a t-shirt in one arm I had a t-shirt and you know, the t-shirt was just wrapped right, right around here and I was just froze and I've just dropped the phone I've sat down and started crying and one of the lads says what's up I says oh one of my best friends has killed himself so he says oh let's bring him upstairs to the gaffer gaffer says get yourself home in Belfast they really the the bury people really quickly compared to England it's like two or three days later so I've gone to the funeral and it was back at the golf club. We have the like a um, wake after in the golf club, and I just remember his dad coming up to me and saying to me, "Michael, can I have a chat with you?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "I just want to explain what's going on, really." And he's just told me that he suffered from severe depression. He said, "All the best help um, in the whole of Northern Ireland couldn't do anything for him." He says he didn't move from a boy to a man. He had a lot, like a lot of. Um, issues with that and he said that he he's tried to kill himself numerous times and um, he said I don't mean to sound really bad but this like I'm now at ease now because he's not suffering then all of a sudden I thought wow so I was I was like awakened to it if you know what I mean awakened to mental health all of a sudden and then you start to see watch and like see what's out there and then I've always been an advocate of it and trying to push it and stuff like that. So when I was when I went a little bit deep there, I thought, shall I shunt her? But people should talk about it and open up about it. And you know I mean, it's, it shouldn't be a thing that you don't want to mention, especially as men. Like some, we're all try to be macho at times, don't we? And sometimes you like just open up and and, and um, speaking up might help you. And then recently we've we've had a death related to the family. Um, He's killed himself as well. So I think I read a stat a few years ago that the biggest killer of men under 45 is suicide. So it's just a frightening stat. Um, so I think and the more I can do to, do to help that, um, I'll, I'll try my best. So for anyone that is potentially struggling with mental health, um, what, would that be a main advice just to talk about it and constantly get it out of your system? 
Yeah, I think the, the, the hashtag I use is probably the best thing. It's like, it's okay not to be okay. I mean, don't be afraid if you, you it might it might not be. It might be just a little bit of stress or a little bit of anxiety, but it might be the start of something. And if you can nip that in the bud straight away, I think people all we're all different, aren't we? And you might not want to open up to certain people because you might think you might get a bit of ribbon or you might be seen differently or people might not want to be around you. But if you speak to someone, you can get some help from somewhere. You can speak to a stranger. You can speak to, there's always now, there's more and more and more um, charities that are helping. And obviously with what's going on in the world and people losing jobs and stuff like that, it's probably at an all time high now. So my advice would be just don't be afraid. You might get rejected, but go again, ask, ask somebody else and just one little piece of advice or one little praise might give you that lift that you need to, or somebody might give you suggestions to deal with things a little bit a different way and that might be the solution to you or you know what I mean so just try and speak up as much as you can Absolutely um, Moving on to your role as head of goalkeeper at the i 2 i Soccer Academy now how much do you enjoy coaching uh, our student athletes? I absolutely love it my boys are the biggest bunch of crazy kids I've ever met in my life. They're brilliant. They make me laugh every single day. They're an absolute joy to work with. Um, they're just brilliant. I mean, I've been on it five years now. Um, luckily, the the directors give me um, 99% free reign on the goalkeepers to build my philosophy and my ideas and the way I uh, want to do things. And it's been an absolute joyous. Like, even today, I've just been laughing all day with Marco Satriano all day. Yeah. We're just training. He's just he's brilliant. It's just characters. They're really characters. I mean, they're they're they come over and you can't knock their attitude, their desire, their determination. Whatever you throw at them, they just want to do it. And they want to do it better the next time, the next time, and the next time. It's just it's absolutely fantastic. As you mentioned, you've been with us from the very start back in 2016. How much pride does that give you? seeing them go through the whole three or four years and develop as goalkeepers and as individuals? I think I, I think I take more pride in the um, development as as individuals more than goalkeepers. I mean, if, if I wouldn't be doing my job within three years, I wouldn't be uh, leaving us as a better goalkeeper. But I think we get them at the right age when they're 18 and they're just coming towards the end of that and then boy ages, if you know what I mean. And then we get them for them three years when it's the start of the man ages. And you can see that development. Like the men, the, the social mental side of things, the growth is just amazing. Like from where they're all, some come in as really shy individuals and by the end of it, they're bubbly characters and they know how to get about and they carry themselves. Body language is much more confident and stuff like that. It's just amazing. You played a large part in the development of Leon Poles, who was with us at eye to eye before signing a pro contract with Shamrock Rovers in Ireland. Is that one of the best parts of your job when you see one of your own kind of progress up to the programme? Yeah, it's, you know, you, you don't go, you don't come into it hoping you'd be, you'd be a fool if you try and say you can get everybody a pro because if you just look at the stats of the pros just to make it, it's ridiculous. But um, Leon, Leon came in, we have a few issues with technical issues, but his main thing was his mental side. He just needed to like knuckle down. So it was more of a more of a challenge with him on the mental side to be more like um, I don't know, 
his head turned on when it needs to be turned on. It was more like going, like floating away. You know what I mean? So it was more of that of a challenge. And and it and about two weeks after he signed, he came in. He he rang me and we had a good conversation. He started laughing. He said. Do you know what? I thought you were harsh about this mental side, about turn up on time and giving the right attitude, giving you know, setting high standards. And but oh my God, I'm now training with 25 Ingies in the change room. And he says, I just hear your voice all the time, all the time. And he says, You know what? I've the pennies just dropped after a sign. And I just said, You're very lucky that you did get signed before the penny dropped. And he said, I am. And he says, now he says he's just a totally different character. So that side of it where you see like the advice you're trying to give them and sometimes they don't want to take it on. Now he's took it on. You know, it's not my advice. It's like the game's advice. It's like this happens and you've got to be on your game every single day in training because you've got a team full of winners every single day. Like even the pro game, you play five a side. If you lose, the other five don't talk to you until after the shower. So that's the standards, and he says, "Yeah, it's real." And he says, "It's really striving him on." But yeah, he's a great kid, and I hope he has a really fantastic career. So, for any prospective goalkeepers that are thinking about joining us here at, at the I to I Soccer Academy, what would you say are, are fundamental when partaking in your sessions? Then, um, I think what what I do is I'm a bit unique in the co- on our coaching ladder because I'm the only coach that trains with first year, second years, third years, and maybe masters. Um, so I, I get the, whereas our league coaches more likely have a year group with one year maybe integrated into that. But the biggest thing I would say is the it, it will take a time to adapt, no matter how much you've trained over there, because the intensity, we train five days a week, and we obviously play two, three games a week, so it's a, it's a big load. Um, but... It's getting better in America, but I'd say where they lack is probably distribution. Like the word punt is banned in my academy. We we play with a purpose. You know what I mean? I, I try to Americanize it by calling it we're the quarterback, but we, we have a golf bag. So we use our putter to play to center half. We use our pitching wedge to play to fullbacks, clip over the strikers. You might use your seven iron into your a clip into halfway line. Then your one wood into your winger's chest, and then you drive over the top. Can you have that, all that? So I think that's the main thing. So we play with, obviously, we have different coaches who have different philosophies and different um, systems. So don't worry about that. I'll, why coaches an all-round so you, that you're ready to play in any system or any formation or any philosophy or style. So finally, he just got some questions for you from Instagram. Uh, and the first one is from Parker, who asks... What separates the good goalkeepers from the great goalkeepers? Consistency. Doing it day in, day out. Doing the simple things day in, day out. People always go to me, oh, he's this goalkeeper, such and such goalkeeper is brilliant because he makes a spectacular save, more spectacular saves. But the opportunity to make them spectacular saves probably comes once every 10 or 12 games. It's that goalkeeper that can do the basics consistent day in, day out. John Lewis has asked, how can I have the confidence in diving for the ball? Technique, just working on breaking it down, right down to the basics and then building it up. That's what we do. So we have we have a goalkeeper that has, I don't know, an issue of diving backwards. We'll go back to our fundamentals, come away from the goal, and we'll just work on slowly building up and then building up the confidence to get it in. 
we've got goalkeeping coaching is not about building well, we've got 14 14 they're the same goalkeepers it's about um, keeping the levels of what they're good at there and just eking away at the weaknesses day by day so don't worry you're never going to get that good that quick just trust the process that's what I say and then we're always we're always doing different sessions to break down sessions for different goalkeepers here so don't worry about that Tommy Brown is a goalkeeper in your group with us obviously at I2I uh, and his dad Scott has asked Sunderland or Newcastle should be an easy one for you Easy, Sunderland, Red and White Army, up the um, Mackens. And just finally, we'll end on a question from Marco Satriano. And <laughs> he wants to know, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? I feel unbelievable because every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, I get to meet my little Californian, Marco Satriano, who brightens up my day. <laughs> I think that'll do it for today's episode. Inge, thank you very much for joining us on the Eye to Eye podcast. No problem, Jay. Enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Cheers. If you would like more information on the i 2 International Soccer Academy, please check out our website, www.i2isoccerecademy.com. And also our Instagram page, we are at i2i soccer academy